0: are listening to the Through the Bible studio series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Here's Nate. Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we have passed from the childhood of Samuel into his adult ministry towards the nation of Israel. And the description is so clear of what he was called to do. It says in verse 1, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. At the end of chapter 3, of course, which is connected to this verse, uh, it's that the word of the Lord was delivered through Samuel and that the Lord kept all of his words from falling to the ground. But here the word of Samuel is so closely connected to the word of the Lord that it's just the word of Samuel that came to all Israel. He's, in one sense, this lone prophetic figure uh, for the nation. And what a wonderful thing to have a strong messenger delivering the word of God to the people of God. I would encourage you to say thank you to the people in your life that have committed the word of God to you, who have explained it to you, who have preached to you, who have faithfully opened up your eyes to the gospel, to uh, the grace of God. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel, verse 1, went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at a place called Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. Now, here we're introduced for the first time in 1 Samuel to a uh, perpetual foe, really, of the Israelites in the Philistines. And in First and Second Samuel alone, the Philistines will be mentioned 150 times. Probably the most famous Philistine warrior is Goliath, whom David will kill later on here in 1 Samuel. And uh, the Philistines were very entrenched and dominant on the coastal areas and the foothills of Canaan and uh, were very prominent during the time of Samuel, Saul, and also David. Now there's a little bit of a question as far as where did these Philistines come from? They were Israel's principal enemy during the Period of the last of the judges, Judges ten and thirteen through sixteen. They were definitely prominent in the story of uh, Samson, and he was the primary enemy of Israel. They were the primary enemy of Israel at that time. Uh, they seem to have been a seafaring people who had traveled from uh, another part of the Aegean Sea region and had moved to Israel, and. Uh, Many people think there were two different migrations of the uh, Philistines, and so there they are, and they're basically at this particular moment in time inhabiting five main towns on the southern coast of Israel, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ekron, Gath, and Ashdod, which we'll see in the next few chapters. They were an advanced people technologically, and they worshipped a god named Dagon that we'll see later on in this uh, particular study. And so they begin now to battle against the Israelites. We're not given any details as far as who started this particular battle, but it will be one of many, the perpetual foe of the nation, the Philistines. And the Philistines drew up verse two in line against Israel And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Now, the interesting thing here is that it's very clear from reading the Old Testament and God's dealings with the nation in Israel that when they lost battles, it was never because of a lack of physical strength. In fact, the battles that they won usually coincided with physical weakness, but their losses had less to do with the physical and more to do with the spiritual. Usually there was some kind of moral failure, sometimes in just one man, uh, like in the case of the loss in battle against the city of Ai and the man Achan who was in sin had brought down the entire nation, but usually some kind of group national sin that had gone on unrepented of for far too long. And so when you see here that the Philistines line up in battle against the Israelites and 4,000 Israelites die and the Philistines are victorious, well, the question should be, well, okay, what are we guilty of? What sin have we committed that has caused us to lose in battle? God has promised to fight with us and fight for us, but if we are losing here, then what is it that is keeping God from fighting our battles for us? And they began asking a beautiful question. They said, the elders did of Israel. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? That's a great question. The problem is that they came to the wrong conclusion. They didn't linger on that question long enough for God to really be able to answer instead of listening to the lord perhaps inquiring of samuel instead they looked inside of their own hearts and the answer that they came up with was was so superficial they said well it's because we don't have the ark with us let's bring the ark of the covenant here with us and when it comes among us it will save us from the power of our enemies now there was a little bit of precedent for bringing the ark into battle. Probably the most prominent picture would be in Joshua chapter 6 when they won a great victory over Jericho. They marched around the city, the priests holding the ark, the trumpets then blasted, and the people shouted, and the walls came down, and God gave them incredible victory. Here, however, the mistake is very clear. They aren't saying to themselves, we need God to go with us. They say, we need the ark to go with us. And they actually know that it's an inanimate object. They say that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. And so these men, these elders in Israel, at this moment, were looking to a thing rather than to God. Now, this thing happened to be a thing that God authored. But sometimes we even look to things that God authors rather than to God. When we need help and we're in times of trouble, we need victory. We need victory from the Lord, not from a thing. And I think we often get into trouble when we look to everything and everyone else but God. In our modern era, we put our trust in our counselors, our seminars, our worship music, our setting that we create as a church, our workbooks, our programs. But really what we truly desire, what we really need, is victory that comes from God. It's wonderful to have all of those things that I just mentioned, but only in submission to the power of God himself. God wants to be the one to save us. He wants our faith, our trust, our confidence to be in him. He wanted to be Abraham's shield, an exceedingly great reward, and he wants to be the same for us. So, verse 4 The people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Now, verse 5. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, and they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were, verse 7, afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Now this is fascinating on a couple of different levels. First of all, Notice that when the ark arrived in the camp of the Israelites, there was a great celebration, so much so that all Israel gave a mighty shout. There was a lot of excitement, a lot of electricity, a lot of passion, but unfortunately, there was also a lot of disobedience. That disobedience was going to be the thing that caused them to lose this next battle, kind of like a team that isn't very skilled isn't really up to the challenge in front of them, but they have a raucous pregame routine that they go through. Well, hey, you can be all pumped up before the game, but you actually have to play the game. And they had a lot of passion, a lot of excitement, but there was something empty to it because of their disobedience. It's not exciting to be part of something that is passionate and fervent and has a lot of electricity and attraction attached to it. But sin, when there is sin, it holds everything back. This mighty shout was an empty shout. Now, the second thing that's interesting is that the Philistines, they actually investigated this great shout. And their conclusion, once they heard what the Israelites were shouting about, was that they were fearful of the ark. They were fearful of God. Notice that they knew of the history of the God of Israel. They don't know it perfectly and accurately because they say these mighty gods, these are the gods, plural. But they do know that the God of Israel had struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness there is a terror that comes upon them because they knew the reputation of Israel and her God and the victory that God had given them more than 300 years earlier against the great nation of the Israelites. And so the Philistines say this, verse 9, take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you, be men and fight. So these Philistines, you know, they're ready to go to war. They're afraid because of the ark, but they don't back down from battle in the slightest. They exhort one another. They encourage one another. Hey, take courage, be men. You don't want to be enslaved, be men and fight. Unfortunately, this is the attitude that the people of Israel should have had in all of these different generations, especially concerning not wanting to become slaves to the Philistines. The slavery had always happened because of loose morality with the Philistines and the surrounding nations. They should have been on greater guard. So verse 10, the Philistines fought and Israel, (laughs) even though they shouted, they were defeated. And they fled every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter for thirty thousand foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the Ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, died. Now, of course, some of this is a fulfillment of God's prophecies about Eli and his household, especially as we'll see here in the next few verses. It says in verse 12 that a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. It sort of pictures a priest in retirement watching and waiting, still caring for the ark of God. He'd given up on his sons, but the ark. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. Remember, in chapter 3, we'd seen that his eyes were dimming. During Samuel's childhood, but now at ninety-eight years old, he cannot see. And the man said to Eli, "I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today." And Eli said, "How did it go, my son?" And he who brought the news answered and said, "Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phineas, are dead." And the ark has been captured. Now he hears this news. He hears that they fled. He hears that many had died. He hears that his two sons specifically have died. And that the ark has been captured. And verse 18, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate. And his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now, this news was bad news indeed. Uh, The fact that his sons had died doesn't seem to have fazed Eli. He probably had already given up on these young men as hopeless, but hearing that the ark had been captured was too much for him, and he fell or fainted as an older man, it was hard for him to take that fall. His neck was broken, and he died. And so the life of this man, Eli, you know, he, he in so many ways is very similar to Saul, who is the first king who is still yet to come here in the book of First Samuel. Eli at times served God faithfully. Other times, He couldn't even measure up to the most moderate standards of godliness. He judged Israel for 40 years. He was the priest at Shiloh for most of his adult life. But he had this glaring defect in his life that really was the overarching thing that colored his reputation Uh, even now to this day. When we think of the priest Eli, we don't think of a man that served the Lord for 40 years We think of a man who could not confront the sin of his own sons. And it, I think, reminds us of the gravity of particular decisions in our lives and the reputation that will be left behind. It is good to honor the Lord with every decision of life. And so this man, Eli, very mixed up, he falls over, his neck breaks and he dies. Now, his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the Ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said, "'Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son.' But she did not answer or pay attention." And she named the child Ichabod saying the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So to close out chapter four here, we have this fascinating little story, but this story is designed to show us the depth of the depression spiritually. There in Israel. This is really, in one sense, the lowest of the low points for the nation of Israel. The ark has been captured. They've lost to the Philistines in battle. And Eli tips over, breaks his neck, and dies. And Phinehas, who had died in the battle, he has a wife at home. She's pregnant, and she hears the news and immediately goes into birth pains and goes into labor. She begins to now die in labor and everyone starts comforting her with a word by saying, oh, don't worry, at least you've had a son. You have an heir. You have a line. You and your husband are dying today, but your line will live. You're giving birth to a son. She's silent. And then she names the child Ichabod which means no more glory. The glory has departed. The glory has left. You see, when they built the tabernacle originally, they built it according to the plans that God had delivered to Moses on Mount Sinai. After they built and constructed a couple of the guys that built it, Bezalel and Aholiad, they put it all together. Moses consecrated Aaron and his sons as the priests. They prayed, they worshiped, and the glory of the Lord came upon the tabernacle. The smoke, the fire, the presence of the Lord was very obvious amongst the nation in those days. Here now, the high priest has died, his sons have died, and most importantly, the ark has been captured. And she says, The glory of the Lord has departed. You know, He is gone from us, and, you know, we are a shell of a nation. The beautiful thing is that God's glory would return. Uh, God is faithful even when we are faithless. And so a day would come, but at this particular moment, she was dead on prophetic by announcing that the glory had departed. Now in chapter five, this is what the Philistines had done with the ark. And of course the ark now takes center stage for a few chapters. It'll be mentioned 34 times in chapter four, five, and six. It says when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. So uh, they could have just taken the Ark to Ekron, which was closer to the battle, but they wanted to take it to Ashdod because this was their chief city and their god Dagon had a temple there. And, you know, the Philistines, they worshiped a plurality of gods, So to them to have captured what they thought was the Israelite god Uh, meant that now he was their god and and part of their collection of deities. So they put the ark into the temple of Dagon, who was their main god that they worshipped. Dagon was uh, sort of a, uh, had at least some kind of uh, fish resemblance, probably from their days as a seafaring group. And so uh, and then they'd sort of adapted him to that region. And so they put the Ark of God in the temple of Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Now here's a beautiful case of God witnessing of himself. You know, Israel was supposed to witness to the surrounding nations and that witness would occur in part through the victories they experienced when they were living in obedience to the Lord. Their disobedience disqualified them from being able to receive victory, but it of course did not disqualify God from winning victory directly over this false God, Dagon. And so God testified of his own power And Dagon falls down now twice, two separate occasions, uh, as he is there inside of this temple of Dagon, but the Ark of God present with him. Now, this is fascinating because at least in the second falling of Dagon, his head comes off and his hands come off. And uh, this in the ancient world you know, to have a severed head and severed hands. These were like battlefield trophies. And so God was vanquishing Dagon right there inside of his own house. Now, the thing I love here is the simple truth that God and Dagon could not dwell together. Sometimes I think we focus so much of our attention on driving out certain false gods and tendencies and negative characteristics from our natural man. And we forget the simple reality that when we invite the Lord in, when we have fellowship with the Lord, as we behold as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians three eighteen, he then, as he comes in, transforms us into the same image from glory to glory. It's good to set aside certain things and say, okay, here's an area in my life I'm, I feel like I'm, I've been a glutton and I want to confess that to the Lord, make it a target that I'm going to get after by the Holy Spirit's help. It's wonderful to do that. But it's good to remember that God will just naturally transform us as we spend time with him. All they did was put God in there and Dagon was driven out. And so the priests of Dagon, you know, they came up with a tradition from that point on that they weren't going to step on the threshold of the door because that's where they found their false god decapitated. So the hand of the Lord, verse 6, was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. And so God afflicts them. This ark would be the worst trophy that these Philistines ever received. And he gave them what is called here tumors in verse six. And it's a very graphic kind of word. Uh, But there's the possibility that this is connected to some kind of perversion and sexual sin. Uh, And so God judges them and God brings out and and, uh, just a a, a bit of his wrath against them. And so they decide, listen, we got to keep Dagon. So let's get rid of the God of Israel and, and his ark. So they sent, verse 8, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the Lord uh, of the God of Israel there. So they just thought, Well, maybe, maybe this is just the wrong city. Let's bring him over to Gath. But after they had brought it, verse 9, around The hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So, verse 10, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of God to Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. So at this point, they're fed up with it. They don't want anything to do with it. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So God Directly and severely judges uh, the Philistines for stealing the ark from the Israelites, which would eventually cause the Philistines to give the ark back to the nation of Israel, which we'll see uh, next time in chapter six. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.